This time on the Rule Right Radio podcast with New York Mike. You look at this and you say, this is what the left did to the great leadership of Donald Trump. They destroyed it from the inside. And what did they replace it with? It wasn't successful. You can't put each thing in a box. You know, four years of this presidency and four years of that. That's eight years of American life. It's our lives. It's the ongoing life of the United States of America and all its citizens are going forward. So you can't just say, okay, you can't take it. How'd you do in the third inning? And then how'd you do in the fourth inning? And they, No, it's all one ongoing life of a country. Their goal in destroying Trump was met. They want to be proud of that, fine, but not the quality of the leadership that they then replaced it with. Not this president or the vice president. He wears black denim trousers and motorcycle boots and a black leather jacket with his name on the back. He does a patriotic podcast called Roll Ride Radio. His name is New York Mike and welcome to the show. This is Roll Right Radio. I'm New York Mike. I am New York Mike, and this is Roll Right Radio. So it's been a crazy week, and I'm playing catch-up podcast right here. Before I get into the meat of what I want to talk about today, which is the great American impact, I want to talk about yesterday. It's been a, a really interesting, fantastic week for me. Every year, we have a combat controller reunion in Las Vegas. It's usually in April. So there's a tradition. Now, if you don't know anything about combat controllers, Air Force Combat Control, CCT, is an amazing military. It's the baddest of the bad. It's what it is. Some great people that I'm very proud to be associated with. Maybe my, my years back in Vietnam, and I don't want to sell anybody short that has ever been a combat controller. Attack P, any of the other what we call battlefield airmen, what the combat controller basically does is direct the airstrikes. And the way we did it back in the day was the forward air controllers used white phosphorus rockets. We were on the ground just giving coordinates to the jets, carrying the radio equipment, you know, out there in the middle of no place and uh, guiding the fast movers, as we call them, the F-15-16s today. Back when I was at <laughs> fours, <laughs> the best of the best. What are you going to do? The big old, you know, F-105 Thunder Thuds. It's a hell of a role. I've got to tell you, the first American military into Afghanistan was a combat controller. And the very last to leave Afghanistan was a combat controller. That's right. When you saw that big American jet leave with all the people hanging off, uh, there was a combat controller on the ground directing all those people that left, that last plane that left. There was a, a combat controller directing that. In the movie, Mogadishu, Black Hawk Down, there was a combat controller. That's And speaking of that, the legendary in our world, Chappie, John Chapman, who was killed, and there's a book called Alone Before Dawn about Chapman's heroics. 
and his death. And there's a movie coming out. The book I just said is called Alone Before Dawn with Dan Schilling. And uh, it's being made into a movie. And it's coming out next year. It's called CCT. It's going to be great. We're all looking forward to it anyway. So we have this reunion in Las Vegas every year. And there's a tradition that a bunch of guys come in from all over and come to San Diego. Either come on their motorcycles, get motorcycles someplace else, or get a motorcycle in San Diego. You know, the Harleys. Here's the weird part. Guys fly in. But my friend Carl flies in from Texas, flies to Vegas, rents a Harley, rides to San Diego, and then rides back to Vegas for the reunion. And and by the way, in Vegas, at the reunion, which is at the South Point Hotel, they get up there, they'll ride out of here today, get to Vegas. And when they get there tomorrow, there's a big ride up to Red Rocks and whatever. It's just a, a great tradition thing. So this year, for a lot of reasons, I met the guys and we rode together yesterday, had a great day. I'm not going to Vegas. It's just one of those years I'm not going to Vegas. But my reunion, you know, there's a, a dozen of us. They come down. One of the guys, Doug, has a big sprawling, you know, ranch out there in the, the hinterlands. <laughs> Beautiful home, awesome property. And uh, he hosts everybody. Everybody grabs a spot, gets a place to sleep, hang out. He's got this big old garage. We all pull into the... It was just a great day. What makes the day is the camaraderie, being around these guys. Sometimes it's the same guys every year, and there's always one or two that I haven't met before. And these modern-day combat controllers do things I can't even imagine ever getting to be qualified to do. I mean, in so many ways, the way they mark targets with these lasers and the way that they can guide in 15, 20. I mean, for us to bring in three, three fast movers on a target, that was a lot to do. These guys are bringing in 15 and 20. It's amazing what they could do, their skill set, their dedication. It's just great to be around these guys. And it's phenomenal. So. In the morning, everybody left Doug's, and we went down to Coronado and had a big lunch and two or three hours of just telling stories and things like that. I didn't even realize in, in all the years that I've known guys like, like Kyle and Doug that there were three or four guys, aside from Kyle and Doug, there were a couple of other guys who have made combat jumps. In some cases, multiple in Kyle's case, for sure, and I think Doug's multiple combat jumps. I'm going to quickly just tell you a combat jump. If you're a paratrooper, everybody, we've all seen movies of, you know, World War II and the paratroopers jumping over, say, Mary Gleese, the 101st Airborne, and being shot down in the sky as they come out. Well, a normal static line jump is from 1,250 feet, and your chute opens at, I'm not an expert on this, I just did it. A few hundred of these jumps. I'd say the chute opens to like 950 feet, maybe a thousand feet. And then, and then, well, the length of the static, if I think about it, the length of the static line is only about 15 feet. So you jump out at 1250 feet and then you just float down on the chute. And so there you are. A combat jump is theoretically 
at 500 feet. And when you're sitting in the plane, of course, you're sitting there in the webbing on this, you know, the red webbing on the planes and you're bunched together and you're all hugging your reserve chute. So you've got your main on your back and then your reserve is in front of you. And that's how I used to sleep. <laughs> I don't think I've ever hit a red webbing and lasted three or four minutes before I fell asleep. I don't care what that play was doing. I don't care what the guys were doing, shaking things up, singing songs, whatever. I'm just, I'm out like a light. But that's, you know, a normal jump. So combat jump, you're sitting there with your reserve and that jump master, you're going you're gonna to hear the words, stack your reserves because there's no need for a reserve in a combat jump. You just pass them back, stack them in the back of the plane or wherever. You jump at 500 feet. Now, I know one other guy that made a combat jump, and he, he told me he didn't think it was 500 feet. And I was talking to Kyle about that yesterday, and he said he was lucky it was 300 feet. Now, when I trained in Israel, and we jumped, and I trained with the IDF and got my jump wings in Israel, I remember going out over the Palmachim. That's the desert area outside of Tel Aviv where we jumped. I'm telling you, I knew... This is not a combat, this is a training exercise. But, you know, with everything going on, it was crazy weather. It was a nutty day. We jumped. There were some people that went through everybody else's life. I mean, it was nuts. That night, we ran into the pilots. Israel's a small place. And, and somebody recognized these guys walking down the street in sandals, somewhere in Tel Aviv. I think that was the pilot. What? How do you know that? Anyway, we went and started talking. These guys said, hey, what was going on, man? That weather was so bad and we couldn't see anything. And we hit the ground so fast. Uh, what do you think anyway? We, so we, we went out about 900 feet. I mean, that was crazy. We didn't know it. So going out at 500 feet, that just gives you time, you know, to light up a cigarette on the way. No, I'm only kidding. <laughs> just give, gives you time to, to feel the pop. <laughs> Thank God for a second. Next thing you know, you're on the ground. So anyway, it's like an amazing thing to me to meet somebody that did that. I've only known one guy I knew well, a combat controller who was in Colorado Springs, actually. And that was over Granada. These guys did their combat jumps over Afghanistan and Iraq. And every time I'm with the same guys year after year, and they, the stories and the things that come up, and not just because it's because everybody's talking about different things. It's just a phenomenal group to be with. So we went down to Coronado. From Coronado, we all rode to Mount Soledad, to the war memorial of Mount Soledad. Obviously, I've been there thousands of times. And throughout the year, there's events, there's things ongoing. And I'm not going to talk that much about the whole process of the legal battles to save the cross and all the rest of it. But we went there because everybody wanted to be there. And then they asked me about the history of what happened. And I gave them my, uh, the short version. 15, 20 minutes. You take a lot of things for granted in life. All the things that are around you that you see and do and hear and interact with every day. You don't realize that, you know, people that aren't as familiar with all these things or at all familiar don't know anything about it. And, and they want to know. And when they find out and they hear about it, it's like a kid learning something for the first time. And you expect that. You may not expect it in adults, and it's quite a uplifting moment. They asked me about it, and I'm surrounded by 12 friends who I really respect, and I begin to tell them, and they're asking me these 
great questions and we're talking and there's interaction as well as my speaking. And um, guys, I'm thinking about it. I'm going, wow, this is the kind of thing that makes it all worthwhile because the time goes by and now the, the cross is an institution. I don't think it'll ever be challenged again, but it may be. It feels good to have done what we've done. And meeting with the Mount Soledad Committee to Save the Cross is great. Love being around these people that did so much. But it, it, you know, everybody else just takes the cross for granted. And, and God bless them. That's what they should do because it's there. It's just there. And here's a group of guys, again, who I, who I love and respect. And I'm talking to them, and they're so appreciative of the story and so like, wow, they wanted to take down the cross. Oh, my God. And it's like, yeah. And it was interesting how they were just so like, no, come on, man. Is that really happening? You know, thank God it was saved and just reliving it in a positive way, not the horrible moments. I never thought for a second we might lose that battle. Don't get me wrong, because I, you know, I'm very spiritual. I believe God is on our side in every way. And I believe that cross is a symbol that God is on the side. As, as horrible as things are, you know, I was with somebody the other day, a few days ago, someone who I love and respect deeply. We were sitting around, there were like four or five of us, just hanging around, smoking cigars, <laughs> talking about things. We talked about the state of the country. And when you talk about it, you talk about everything bad, everything horrible, everything that's going wrong. And this comment was, this is not the country I expected to die in. Wow, what a horrible thing to have to think. And I, I didn't want to sit there and argue, but my answer was, wait a minute. It's really not all that bad. It's a battle. It's always ongoing. It was always a battle. I talk about this constantly on my podcast, and it's one of the things I'm going to talk about today if I ever stop talking about the reunion. <laughs> amount solidarity, which may take a while. I see things as a believer, as a believer in God and what's good and that civilization and mankind has progressed in great ways. And yes, horrible things happen. You want to say two steps forward, one step backward, three steps forward, one step back, however you want to phrase it. Yeah, there are moments in history, horrible moments. But take a look at where we are to where we've been. And you're going to see a constant path of improvement. And that's the way it's always going to be. That is who I am. And that's who, what I believe. That's aggressive optimism. You can call it what you want. Yeah, maybe you, call, you want to call it stupid. Okay, you can. But that's my belief. And I believe it. And I believe deeply in God and the goodness of humanity. And yeah, it's, again, there's the Stalin's, Hitler's, Putin's, all of that. The medieval times, the horror stories that we've persevered, lived through, overcome. And that's our mission, our goal, to overcome, move on, and get better and better. And even at these moments, the darkest moments, if you believe, you're going to be looking for signs of belief. If you don't believe, you're going to be looking for signs of doom. Everything you see, that's a sign of you know, whatever. What's going on with Disney today and this country and the AOCs and the Green New Disaster Deal and all the rest of it? People focused on whatever, not doing the right thing 
for the people in Ukraine. All these things are signs of you know, doom, gloom, and everything wrong. And I see signs of everything right. I see signs in spite of all these other things, of people rising up and staying in the course and fighting the fight and believing in not just the God the Almighty and the rest of it, believing in themselves and in this country. You know, I see the people in the Ukraine standing up, fighting back. Like, it's the miracle of Ukraine. It's right before our eyes. Have they won? No. But they're winning. They're persevering. Are people dying? Are people being displaced? Are they going through hell? Yes. But what do you see? Is the glass half empty or is the glass half full, so to speak? Maybe that's a bad example, but it's the closest thing I could come with my limited intellect to try to make clear the fact that when I see that cross, that war memorial with its cross intact on Mount Soledad, despite all the odds, and I see the gratefulness of guys that weren't aware of the battle that went on, and how grateful they are, and how appreciative they are, and how aghast they are that there was even this challenge to try to remove it. So it, it's just, it says to me, wow, we never were going to lose that battle. We should have known all the time. And not, not that I doubted it, but you know, it, you, you don't know until you know. And so then we went up on the cross, and we combat controllers, and I guess all military organizations, whatever, have their own rituals. And these combat control ritual is to do memorial push-ups. So we did the memorial push-ups on the steps right there on the memorial. It was really cool. There was a guy there, kind of a young-looking guy, and he turned out to be not, not that young, but he really was a young-looking guy. I wouldn't have guessed that he had been in Vietnam and he was there, and he was a visitor, and he, he came up to us, saw the memorial push-ups, and told us he was in a medical unit in, uh, in Vietnam in 1970 and 71. And he began talking about it, and it, it just looked up and said how much he appreciated that this cross was still here, this war memorial was here in San Diego. And we didn't get into the details that I was explaining the battle to save the cross to my CCT friends. It wasn't that with him. And then he called his wife over and they were visiting from San Francisco and just, you know, sitting there and reminiscing about his time in Vietnam and his brother and him getting to see a Bob Hope Christmas show in Benoit in, I think he said 1971. It was just interesting that here's a guy traveling through from out of town, first time he said somebody told him he had to go to Mount Soledad, and here he was. And again, just one more reinforcement of how important it was to save that monument as it was, just the way it was with that amazing 43-foot-high cross intact. And it was just a great day. We rode back to Doug's. And got together. Oh, and another irony of the day. Was it an irony or whatever? You know, something that happened. Random acts of kindness and wonderful things. So I'm there and Doug said, are you coming back to the house? And I know he lives up in the mountains and the things. And I think so. I said, you know, maybe I'll ride back with you. Maybe I want to I get home. I got a lot of things. Petrina and I are leaving for Austin, Texas in a few days. We've got to get ready and like that. 
He said, well, listen, I just want you to know we have plenty of food and we have entertainment coming. I said, really? He says, yeah. He says, there's a, a guy who's a retired Navy SEAL and he's got a band. And it's like, I said, wait a minute. Are you talking about Pat Ellis? He said, yeah. I said, get out of town. He says, yeah, yeah Pat Ellis. Pat Ellis and the Blue Frog Band. Pat Ellis is <laughs> he's a good friend, great, great human being, phenomenal guy. And it's kind of funny. I said, no. I said, you got Pat Ellis coming? He goes, yeah. I said, I didn't even know you knew Pat Ellis. He said, yeah, I ran into him a few weeks ago at some whatever, a, a veterans thing and on and on and on. And so I said, well, if you got Pat Ellis coming, I've got to be there. It was pretty cool. We all got to Doug's at about 4 o'clock up in the middle of the mountains. And I said, Patrina, I'm going to be home a little bit late. But then Pat came, and it was great to see him. It's funny. Pat has played Sturgis for the last couple of years. And, of course, we're really good friends. His band has played events even in his backyard here in San Diego. We've had some great events and moments. He's played at San Diego Harley-Davidson. And for the last few years, he's gone to Sturgis. And each year, puts my name on the list to come up and to play. And I'm always at the Buffalo Chip, and that's where we played. That's Sturgis and doing things. And for some reason... I get to the chip and something comes up and I have to leave and I didn't get to see Pat two years in a row. So here I am. Pat gets all set up. He's playing his music. Now it's like around 6 o'clock, 6.30. It's just starting to get dark. And I say to the guys, listen, I'm going to get out of here. It's getting cold, dark. I don't even want to go on these back roads without lights, without seeing any twisties, which I love. But, you know, if I can't see anything, what fun is that? We do that too many times. I said, I'm going to get out of here. So I go back. Pat's just kind of warming up. His guitarist is with him, his keyboard guy, and uh, playing a little song. So I get out there in front of, you know, and I dance a little bit so I could say, and the guys are hanging around. I said, see, I came, and I even danced, and now I got to go. And Pat goes, no, you're not leaving. I said, yeah. I said, Pat, it's your tradition. You stop playing. I got to leave, man. <laughs> so it was just a great day, a fun time. I was glad to get home early enough to hang out with Petrina and her dad. And, and they said it was raining as I got there. I didn't even feel it. So that was yesterday. And one of the reasons why I did not get to do the podcast. So I'm going I'm to do a podcast right now, which we're in the middle of, actually. Got it. Okay. And um, Petrina just came out in our P wife sweatshirt. It looks really good, by the way. Yeah, she sat away and got me TACP license plate frames. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I love it. Sometimes, you, you know, you just got you, you go off the path a little bit. So that's what we've done. But I, I really want to talk about this great American impasse. I may not finish it today, or I might do this in two parts. I don't know. But I spend a lot of time writing things out before each podcast, a couple of times a week. It's a little work, but I like it. And I like to get my thoughts down. I crystallize what I'm thinking about, and I can put it out there. And so I start this great American impasse, and I'm thinking about jokers on the left and clowns on the right, and here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Don't get me wrong. It's It's like me and you, the American people. Half of us looking to the left, half to the right, each half 
condemning the other half for their irresponsible and callous disregard for what's most important for America, arguing about who's responsible for what's gone wrong, who's responsible for what's going wrong. Nothing can move forward until the politics of two Americas can resolve to agree to disagree and somehow clear a path and agree with each other. It's just the way it is. Was that confusing? Of course, the answer is a strong, charismatic leader who can form a team acceptable to the majority of Americans of both parties and all political philosophies. Think about Reagan. Think about Kennedy. Maybe you didn't like Reagan. I didn't like Kennedy. That's life. But these are leaders. And people followed him. Kennedy had his detractors. Uh, I'm probably one of them. <laughs> I was and am. But most people in America, to the left and the right, talk about Kennedy with reverence. They do. And I have so many friends that tell me, yeah, Kennedy would be a Republican today. That shows you how good the Republican philosophy is. And they use that. So, you know, when you talk about leadership, it's what's going on in Ukraine today. When everyone's attention is focused on being at war, it's 100% focused. It's an issue that allowed Zelensky, he outlawed 11 political parties, or every party other than his own, right? So there's that leadership that they're focused on something bigger than themselves, bigger than every other issue, bigger than all the issues that separate them. Here they are focused on this one issue that brings every single one of them together. It's called survival. So here comes Zelensky, and he outlaws every other party, and boom. So is every model, you know, of this great leadership a role model for us? No, far from it. you got plenty of leadership that's horrible. I don't have to tell you that. But it demonstrates then when a leader is capable and the circumstances present themselves to be maybe less than existential, which means just threatening the very existence, our very existence, but serious enough to unite the country with enough regards for those issues, enough concern with potential national resolve to do what it will take to solve these issues, real leadership will be capable of setting and achieving national goals by building a team acceptable, honest, focused on the task, unified with each other and most of the people with a strong degree of credibility overall. The more severe the circumstance, the more likely the populace will come together. But it's always the competency of leadership that will instill the confidence of government or not. And that's important because I see that as what's going on today. The current U.S. leadership does not measure up. The past leadership was eroded, okay, almost destroyed by the political corruption, the media, everything. The media, government agencies from the FBI, the CIA, everything. False claims of illegal activities such as, you know, Russia collusion and so on. And Arguably, the left had rigged the election, and their goal was met, but not the needed or acceptable quality of the leadership. They did what they set out to do. 
They destroyed the Trump presidency. I mean, impeached them twice about nothing. And they were both wrong. They were wrong, wrong on every count. It was ridiculous, and that's why he never was impeached. The Senate said no, twice. That means Democrats as well as Republicans. So you look at this and you say, this is what the left did to the great leadership of Donald Trump. They destroyed it from the inside. And what did they replace it with? It wasn't successful. You can't put each thing in a box. You know, four years of this presidency and four years of that. That's eight years of American life. It's our lives. It's the ongoing life of the United States of America and all its citizens are going forward. So you can't just say, okay, you can't take it. How'd you do in the third inning? And then how'd you do in the fourth inning? And they, No, it's all one ongoing life of a country. Their goal in destroying Trump was met. They want to be proud of that, fine, but not the quality of the leadership that they then replaced it with. Not this president or the vice president. Come on. Joe Biden is, he's our leader. Yeah, we, he was forced on us. And he's not somebody anybody wants to follow anyplace. Not his side, not our side. But then you got the VP. Then you got this whole team, the squad, the AOCs and all the rest of them. Feckless at best. Are they standing up against him? You know, we talk about what's going on in Russia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not comparing us to Russia. Don't get me wrong. We're not destroying another country, okay? We're not. And they are. But they're destroying Russia. Putin is destroying Russia, destroying the lives of people in Russia by causing them all this pain. That's exactly what Biden is doing, okay? Exactly. And who's standing up? We look at Russia and say, aren't there more people in charge? They can stand up and say, enough of this war, enough of what Putin's doing. Well, what about the Democrat Party? What about this team around Biden? Not much of this new, this current administration, you know, elected based on lies, running on bad politics, on bad policies, a level of fecklessness not acceptable to anybody, which is the closest thing. The national agreement that we have right now is how horrible and feckless this administration is. I think their approval rating, they say, is 38%. That's the last number I had, 38%. 38% of the country approve. I don't believe that number, by the way. I think it's much less. But let's say it is 38%. That's pretty low. And you feel, you can feel it. You can feel it. You know what? I would almost, almost outlaw polling. Just do away with it. I think the purpose of polling is to make pollers a lot of money. People who take polls make a lot of money. So they call 1,200 people. There's 340 million, 30 million people in America. That's how many Americans, okay? And they're going to poll 1,200 and then tell you what's going on in the whole country. The people say 38% of the people agree with Joe Biden. Okay, well, did you talk to 38% of the people? So what's the sample? 1,200, 2,000, 3,000? It doesn't mean anything. It's meaningless. When I look back, I don't know how many years I've seen this, you know, phenomenon of polling. The polls say, I really don't know, 10, 15, 20. And when you look back and you go, wait a minute, how did they get elected when the polls were so much against them? How did 
Trump get elected. Remember what the polls said? I don't think the polls ever projected a Joe Biden victory because there never was a Joe Biden victory. But if you listen to what they say, let's say you're watching a, a football game and these pollsters are in the audience and they go to the microphone, sir, how do you feel about what's going on on the field? Doesn't that depend on which team you're rooting for? Who are they polling? What are they saying? What, what's really objective about anybody's polls? I think it puts us in a direction that the pollster, be there Biden pollsters, Trump pollsters, Republican, Democrat, left-wing, whatever, the way they want to go in, and I don't want to say directs the country, but puts the country in a direction that the pollsters get hired to put the country in. There's a lot more work to be done. I'm just tired of hearing everything's about the polls say. Well, what do I say? What do you say? What do we individually say and think and do? It has nothing to do with what the polls say, yet the polls absolutely influence what people say and what people do. And that's just a fact I don't like, but it, it is a fact. So <laughs> I'll do a podcast on that. I have to do a lot more work, a lot more research. And I'll poll the people and find out what other people say. But you know, the bottom line is this impasse has got to be overcome. We've got to. The world is on the verge of another world war. The credibility of the U.S. is in jeopardy from our dollar remaining as the world's currency to our military still being the free world's most feared. The credibility of the current president and his administration is eroding on an almost daily basis. His so-called gaffes in Brussels have added gaffes. That's a, oh, Biden, he makes gaffes all the time. That's a, you know, no. The gaffes in Brussels, uh, on top of all the other, they've added to a long list of serious misstatements, like an incursion is okay by Russia. Remember he said that just a few weeks ago? That was before the invasion. He said, look, an invasion, no, that's not, but if it's just an incursion, so, well, that's okay. That stupid remark. I mean, his, his disgusting remarks, and many of them, accusations of white racism, is just something that, it just sits in my craw, and I think a lot of other people too. It's just wrong, and it's no gaffe. He thinks it's okay to say those things? No, it's not. And there's so much more. And now he, he's calling for regime change in Russia. You know, that statement, in the first place, it was condemned worldwide, except, of course, by noted left-wingers and well-known never-Trumpers who are comparing his words to Reagan. I swear to God, they compared those words to Reagan's words in Berlin. Biden's saying he doesn't want to do the flyover thing. He doesn't want to protect the skies over the Ukraine, as, of course, the Ukrainians are begging for, because he's afraid that it might inflame Putin and start a war or have Putin go nuclear on us. He stops the transfer of MiGs, Polish MiG-29s, outdated, They're certainly inferior to the Russian MiG-30-whatever. So I get that. But you know what? You can say everything that the Ukrainians have is inferior to what the Russians have, and yet they're holding them off and arguably beating them. But they, they wouldn't be doing it unless we supplied all these things. 
and the polls are ready to give them all these MIGs, Biden says, no, what's that all about? This is just wrong. So he says all that because he's afraid to antagonize Putin. But what does he do on the quote-unquote world stage? He antagonizes Putin by calling him names, calling him criminals, and then calling for regime change. Now, they try to walk it back. Oh, he didn't mean the regime change in Russia. Well, yes, he did. That's what he said. That's what Biden does. And it's just wrong. And look, if you wanted to protect the skies over Ukraine, or we're going to make sure they get their MiGs. Okay. I mean, if you want to go that far, I got a little bit of renewed respect. And I understand the reasons why they don't want to do the no-fly zone. I get it. I don't agree, but that's okay. I accept it as prudent politics not to inflame a guy who's threatening in his own way to go nuclear. Okay. But the MiGs, we're already giving these Ukrainians these great weapons of war. Oh, now you're going to say, oh, you can't include MiGs? Why not? They're not even coming from us. They're coming from Poland. So I, I don't understand the logic behind it. I don't get it. I don't like it because I think that when you talk out of both sides of your mouth, because when he gets up there, he's talking about the courage of the Ukrainians and how they're standing up and how they're doing this, but he's not talking about them winning the war. He's not saying they're going to win and we're going to get behind them. He's not giving that much encouragement. If he did, maybe I'd feel different. If he went all in, I'd feel different. But he's not. And whether I agree or disagree with the level of commitment, don't call for regime change as if you're the one who's on those front lines. And when they say you're the one, I mean you, America. We say, oh, we're not going to send Americans in, and we shouldn't. And then you talk as if they're your troops. I think it's just wrong. I think what Biden does is so wrong. And now he's proposing this budget, this $5.8, basically $6 trillion budget, okay? And he's trying to justify it. He's saying all these things. Oh, we reduced the deficit. Oh, we have more jobs. We have amazing inflation. And he's basing that whole budget on a 2% inflation rate. While right now, the inflation rate sits at 8%, projected to go way past 10% in just months, which is a major change factor. So not only is there much that's so objectionable to most of us, okay, it's all based on a lie. It's based on numbers that greatly misrepresent what the true numbers are, what the actual proposed budget will be. It's all a lie. So clearly, an impasse is in a representative republic. That's what we have. Our form of government, you call it democracy because we have elections. We have a representative republic, okay? It isn't 340 million people out there just voting on everything. It's 340 million people voting on who will represent large groups, cities, 
states, counties, and this impasse in our form of government is supposed to be solved by elections, local, national elections. The problem with that in our current political environment is threefold. First, we have gerrymandering of district-given majorities to one party or another, and it's distorting many elections given additional reps to some less to others. If you don't understand gerrymandering, take a look at the voting districts. <laughs> the gerrymandering, it means fixing a territory. How's that for a off-the-top-of-my-head-off-the-cuff definition? Fixing the territory, as stupid as it may look on a map. That's representing this. <laughs> it's dumb. The second is the country's become severely divided more so than I can ever remember in my lifetime. And almost in our history, going back even to the Civil War, the Revolution, you know, one side gives the other little and no credibility, right? Little and no credibility, making adherence to past laws tenuous at best. Take a look. Evidenced by the near revolt in many cities after the George Floyd murder and, and even the protests in D.C., on January 6th, take a look at what's going on. Take a look at what's going on in New York City. The city's all over the country. And yeah, I know, right now you're looking at you're looking at left-wing protests. You want to call it that? The BLM and Antifa-led stuff? I don't think that January 6th was anything near what they're talking about. It wasn't close to It was a protest, okay? It was a protest because we don't respect the left. And so you have all these things working against solving this impasse. And then the third thing I'll call out is the corruption of our elections. This encompasses too much to be lumped together in one category from high-tech participation with anything from cancel culture tactics to skewered major donations like Zuckerbuck's 450-plus billion dollars to defeat Trump. All, all these high-tech people, 95% against Trump, got together 100% to defeat him. That's just wrong. The falsified ballots, ballot harvesting, it's legal. Ballot harvesting is legal. I mean, that's just crazy wrong. Overuse mail-in ballots, okay, with no verification, no signatures, no picture ID. It's just not working. And there's more which must include left-wing and democratic cries of racism due to voter suppression. That's what they're screaming. Oh, it's racist, voter suppression. And from the other side, the, the voter suppression of blacks by asking for voter ID, by saying that voter suppression is asking as if as if blacks were incapable somehow. I mean, this isn't, the 1800s or the 1930s? This, this isn't days where you have a poll tax, the relic of Jim. They want to keep on talking about that as if that's going on today, as if we didn't defeat that, as if we didn't pass that and go forward and move on, as if that was still around. The basic subjugation of people in the black race in this country, you know, before the Civil War with slavery and after the Civil War, with what they want to call Jim Crow laws. We've gone past that. And if you don't believe it, well, I'm sorry for you. And I'm sorry for those people who sacrifice so much 
back in those days to get where we are, for they could see how we are treating where we are given their sacrifice. Instead of the appreciation that I see from my friends when they see that War Memorial of Mount Soledad and appreciate that cross is still there, instead of getting that appreciation, if I came back from the dead and saw that, I'd be like, wow, that's great. What are the people that sacrificed their lives and so much of what they own and, and, you know, the quality of their life to give up so much for us to move on from those days to where we are? I don't want to have to give examples of black presidents and black people in the limelight all over, black doctors. and I mean, everything. And these people are still talking as if blacks have to be Oh, we got to take care of them. They're some sort of handicapped people. No. There are quality people that equal the quality of any people on the planet. And if they have to be asked for voter ID to vote, I don't see why it would be a problem. It is no problem. It should be no problem. They are perfectly capable of overcoming whatever inconvenience it might be to do that and get it done. So we've got to get past all these things. Now, the question remains, how do we get past this impasse? And the answer is by agreement. Nothing changes in life. And like I began, when our focus is on the basics, we are, as are the Ukrainians, the survival, we will come together. In the Ukraine, the situation showed itself, and the leader who was new, inexperienced, and otherwise questionable as well other than other things, that leader that they happen to have at the time, he stepped up to meet the moment, galvanized his people with his courage, his confidence, and commitment, and brought them all together. That focus, when you're being attacked, invaded, cannot be questioned or ignored. Here in our country, the focus on one side is climate change, racism, and sexual fluidity. The other side, military readiness, energy independence, and adherence to our Constitution. It, it, to me, it's black and white. Oh, yeah, and a clear simplification. Okay, I know, but a good basic description of our differences. That's what I see as our differences. Let me say it again. The left, climate change, racism, and sexual fluidity. Our side, military race readiness, energy independence, and adherence to our Constitution. It's an oversimplification. I get it. But I also think it's pretty well stated, okay? So who and where is the leader who can cut through this Gordonian knot, okay? This Gordonian knot of issues. Cut to the core issues we can all agree on. I'm, I'm going to continue on this subject the next time. I've spent a lot of time talking about my uh, CCT reunion, and I think that this is an important subject. Getting past this impasse, we have to do it. Now, we're going to do it, okay? You know, we got to cut to the core issues. There are sexual fluidity issues. There are green new agenda there. You know, global climate change, warming, freezing, whatever they're talking about. That's man-made. I don't, I don't want to get into a whole argument. I know. A lot of people think the climate's changing. Well, it is. It's been changing since climate began, billions of years ago. How do we find that person, that leader? Do we have to? 
you know, do we have to? Uh, I'm going to leave it right there because, in my opinion, human history tells us resoundingly, yes, it's always a single person, good or bad, from, you know, King David, King Solomon, Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great, Moses, Jesus, Mohammed, the list goes on. The ship always needs a captain. And I am New York Mike, and I'm captain of Roll Right Radio. <laughs> that's, that's right. We're going to continue talking about this because this is something that's so important in America today. I want to thank you. Everybody out there that listens to Roll Right Radio, man, there's so many new people, so many people I meet almost every day that talk to me about what I say on Roll Right Radio. Most of it's complimentary, by the way. <laughs> I appreciate that, too. I get criticized. I, I really do. Maybe I don't talk about that enough, and I should, but then I will, okay? But, you know, there's a lot to be said. There's a lot to talk about this country. This is the country that I love. And it's just the way I love it. You know, confrontational, battling people. People love this country on the left and on the right. So we need to get together and focus and agree on something. I don't think that the, the majority of this country is going to agree or benefit from agreeing on most of the things that the left put out there. But there's a place, there's a place to compromise. There's a place that we need to get together. They need to understand the importance of being militarily prepared. They need to understand the importance of capitalism and real economics in this country. We'll talk more about climate change. <laughs> yeah, I guess we, we're going to. I'm New York Mike. We're going to talk more about a lot of things on Roll Right Radio. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being there. For right now, I'm out. Thanks for listening to the Roll Right Radio podcast. Listen, follow, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.